many pastors, including myself, I guess feel inclined on Palm Sunday to, if not preach a sermon from that text, at least make a connection to that text. And uh, I like to think that in my prayers, I said, Lord, if there is no connection, if there's nothing here, uh, then show me what to do. If you want to preach a sermon on Palm Sunday or just continue on in Acts. So I don't feel this is, I don't know, man, uh, artificial. I, I feel there is a connection that the threat that the Jewish religious leaders feel on that Sunday is still present in what Paul is facing. Well, what Lois read for us earlier, namely in verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Likely comes from what Jesus' disciples were saying. Luke records them reciting Psalm 118.26, which is a psalm meant for both the Messiah and the rightful King of Israel. In other gospel accounts outside of Luke make it clear that they were saying Hosanna again, which means save now. And the Pharisees valued the meager amount of peace that Israel experienced under Rome, primarily because the Pharisees and the other religious leaders were cushy and comfortable. And this rural rabbi Jesus was challenging that. His disciples stating that he was their Messiah could be a challenge to the Romans, but furthermore was a challenge to their religious institution. Because Jesus demanded repentance. Jesus wanted pure religion. Not hypocritical rituals meant to make Jews feel like that they were okay. <laughs> like the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus valued what Samuel proclaimed. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. But the Jews were making lots of money on sacrifices and rams under Rome. This genuine repentance stuff, this really fear and obey the Lord stuff, well, that, that doesn't bring money in. And while Jesus rode in on a donkey the week of Passover, Paul came back from a missionary journey into Jerusalem the week of Pentecost. And while Jesus turned over temple tables at the temple, Paul, for the sake of, of unity with Christian brothers who still thought that there was value and necessity at the temple, Paul fulfilled a vow keeping the law at the temple. Yet Paul had this strange belief that the true temple of God is God's people made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he's wrongfully accused of, of bringing an Ephesian named Trophimus into the temple with him. And a riot ensues. He was spared by a Roman tribune from the riot. And then he declares his Roman citizenship at an opportune moment right before he was flogged. Which maybe you don't remember this, but I just feel inclined to apologize. I think I told you he was never flogged. I was reading back through Acts. He was flogged before, so... I, now I corrected myself and I can sleep at night. So 
But the tribune tried to summon the Sanhedrin to find out what's so controversial about this this Paul. They, they were summoned by Lysias, the tribune. Um, that ends in a theological spat. Meanwhile, zealots uh, conspire to kill Paul. And so the tribune sees Paul's safe passage here to Caesarea Martima to stand a trial before Felix, a regional governor, and safely away from the conspirators. This is where we're at in the story. Uh, I do invite you to stand if you're able, and I want to make mention that I'll be pulling text relegated to footnotes as far as the manuscripts that ESV is based off of. If you have a King James, a New King James, or they will have it all within the text. And so I will be bringing it up and putting it in the text for our purposes this morning. I intend to cover all of Acts 24 today, but let's just read verses 1 through 9 right now. It says, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him, and we would have judged him according to our law. But the tribune, Lysias, came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Let's pray. Father, uh, maybe it's just me, but sometimes I read in Acts, and especially near the last chapters, I feel like I'm just looking at itineraries and court cases. And we can have, forgive us, at least I can have a dismissive attitude, quickly reading through things and But you remind me week in and week out that your word is chocked full of your inspiration, that you have things to say to us, to our hearts, that you, Holy Spirit, has recorded these things for a reason, to instruct us all the days of our lives. And so we pray that as we unpack these things today, that you would use it to glorify your son Jesus, to build us up in the faith, to draw us close to you. Your word tells us that with all of our worries and cares and concerns, you instruct us in one thing, seek first the kingdom of God. And so we pray that that's what we would be doing in these moments. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that I am cautious about as we approach this text as we're about to look over this passage, I think with some triumphal entry lenses, somewhat. And again, perhaps the feelings and subtle connections I make were present in that the same Holy Spirit and the same author who writes Luke and tells us about the triumphal entry, perhaps he had this in mind, or, or maybe the Holy Spirit had in mind. I do feel the Scriptures are so connected. But I do want us to be to, to be cautious, as I cannot confirm or deny that that is what Luke or the Holy Spirit had in mind. 
when he is giving us his word that's living and active. What I do see, though, is that as Jesus came in on a donkey to Jerusalem, there was a myriad of, of misunderstandings. The disciples and the crowds who were crying out, Save now, Hosanna, misunderstood the reality of who the Messiah is. He was coming to liberate, he was not coming to liberate them from the Romans or to restore Israel to power and greatness. Misunderstanding. Secondly, about that misunderstanding was not a new Israel nation or people, but via the the resurrection, a new Israel, people of God, saints of God, chosen people of God, found in Christ. That was the answer to the misunderstanding. While the disciples and the crowds centered the Messiah on Israel, the nation, the centrality lies with the resurrection. And then lastly, as Lois read for us, the judgment that awaited Israel. So there are true implications to dread. That while the Pharisees dreaded the possibility of inciting Rome because of Christ's entry, the real dread lies with rejection of the Messiah. Offending God and living in unrighteousness because one has not accepted Christ's salvation and righteousness. And these three things are present today in our passage in Acts 24. There is misunderstanding the kingdom. Then the centrality of the resurrection is mentioned. And then we're going to end with true implications to dread, because that's such a great ending and send you out with. Don't worry, I'll make it a little more sugar-coated. Well, never mind. Verses 1 through 9, though, there is a misunderstanding the kingdom. But even... Misunderstanding can be a bit misleading because whether people are willing to admit it or not, what lies at resisting Christ and what lies at resisting Paul is not so much misunderstanding, but out-and-out animosity and enmity. The Pharisees and types like them who told Christ to quiet their disciples are the same types who have secretly plotted his death. That's not misunderstanding anymore. And the same types of people plotted Paul's death. Thus, just like Christ's trials, which were jacked up with fluff and garbage, so these people today are trying the same tactics against Paul. But thankfully, Paul's not being tried in the horrid courts of the Jews, only a slightly less horrid court, the Romans. And when the Roman courts and judges are more to be desired, you know it's got to be bad. Uh, Verse 1 again states, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tortullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. There are times in the Bible, and I've discovered especially with Luke, he just summarizes things that he wish I wish he would draw out. Maybe he said, my gospel's the longest, I can't write anymore, I don't know. Oh, to see these five days! It was it was under the cover of night that the tribune Lysias sent Paul out of harm's way. Meanwhile, Ananias, the high priest in Jerusalem, he was in on the plot to kill Paul. And now, he and the Sanhedrin are informed 
that instead of Lysias sending Paul to their court, the Sanhedrin, one more time, he hears, oh, I've already sent him to the Roman governor for sentencing. You know, he's a Roman citizen. If you want to make your case there, feel free to. The rug was definitely pulled out from underneath Ananias and the Sanhedrin and the conspirators. And so instead of the Sanhedrin sitting on the judging bench with Lysias, now the Sanhedrin, they need to become accusers and let another Roman be the judge. Maybe I'm just a little facetious and, and mean, but I want to, I just, I guess I want to see them boil in their own stew for a bit. And so Ananias comes down with elders and a spokesman named Tortullus. It's a Roman name, but he's going to identify himself with the crowd of Jews. Could be that he was a Roman Jew. I don't know. And instead of identifying, um, excuse me. No, anyways, he's going to give a pack of lies. In verse 2, we begin those pack of lies. It says, And when he had been summoned, Tortullus began to accuse Paul, him, saying, Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. This is likely around 57, 58 A.D. One decade later, nearing 70 A.D., a Jewish war would happen where the temple is raised by the Romans. Actually, it's likely what Christ was prophesying about on the triumphal entry, as Lois read for us. Anyways, one of my commentators stated that during a series of horrible Roman governors of Judea, Felix stands out as the worst. He is the tipping point, the key player that actually makes A.D. 70 happen. He was that bad. There had been sporadic Jewish uprisings against Rome, but under Felix, the rebellion and the uprising becomes permanent. And what Tertullus is doing is an expected social norm, an expected social custom of, of, of lying that everybody expects. He's flattering and laying it on thick for the governor Felix, though none of it is true. <laughs> just like this line isn't either. But to detain you no further, Tortullus probably really had nothing more to say. But he's just saying, I could go on forever how great you are. He, he really, no, he's really done. But he's laying it on thick. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. If you didn't know where your Bible uses the world, it's often just referring to the Roman world, so... I don't think Paul was in Australia stirring up riots. Tortullus also says that it is Paul is also a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now this is a derogatory name, just like Christian itself was derogatory. Christian means little Christ. Oh, and then, uh, so saying one was a Nazarene was like saying, oh, you know, the, the prestigious University of Stites, Idaho. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> but, <laughs> But that's kind of what Nazarene was. It's uh, the backwater of Nazareth. That's where that rabbi comes from. That's who they're following. Throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he has been the central target of some riots uh, along the way, uh, of some mob violence. Besides Jerusalem, there are, I think, about six separate cities or towns where Paul has brought on violence. Now, I will say that I have ran into many people who are like, I don't get it. Everyone's out to get me. I'm always the victim. And meanwhile, it's evident to me and everyone they meet, you are the common denominator. 
as in maybe they share the guilt or deserve the animosity they create everywhere. However, as far as Paul goes, if this Tortullus had done his homework, he's leaving out some things, no doubt, on purpose. All the charges, as you read throughout Acts, really are jacked up as far as Paul is suffering violence is concerned. He's not the one inciting riots. And I believe this is where misunderstanding the kingdom comes in. After our prayer request time, which I couldn't have manipulated that, if it's not plain and clear, the world's values are not the kingdom's values. And as hard as it is is to hear in a postmodern world where everything's relative, nothing's absolute, the world's values bring death, destruction, injustice, and the kingdom's values bring life, restoration, and justice. Some things are wrong. Other things are right. One of the so-called riots that Paul stirred up involved this, a demonized woman. Paul freed her of that demon, and it upset the town. Well, you're not putting it in the right light, so opponents to Paul's ministry might say, the demonized woman was actually making money for her masters. That's why they're so upset. And so Philippi rallies an attack on Paul and Silas. Or in another example of one of Paul's so-called riots, they're wrecking our livelihood with what they're teaching. So say idol makers in Ephesus who make their money by fastening pieces of wood, stone, or precious metals and then milking people of their money because those people felt like if they wanted to find favor with their false gods and thought well of in their cult, they should buy those idols. And Paul is wrecking that livelihood. So a riot ensues and Paul's the target. Paul is not the one stirring up riots. He is the one bringing messages of hope, freedom, forgiveness, salvation, and healing to everyone. Where he goes, his enemies of the same stripes here testifying against him today are the ones instigating the riots. They were about to conspire to kill him before he was spared by the pagan Roman. It's misunderstanding the kingdom. The, the misunderstanding and mischaracterizations continue as, as Tortillus says, he even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him, and we, we would have judged him according to our law, but the tribune Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. So here is Tortullus's game. We would have taken care of this ourselves. This was a matter at our temple. We would have handled it, but your little Roman tribune Lysias had to make it a big issue. He had to take you from your busy schedule of greed and corruption and stealing wives. We'll talk about that in a bit. But we would have taken it, taken care of it, most excellent Felix. This is all too inconvenient. It could have been avoided. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in on the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So just so we're all on the same page and we're all picking up the same garbage that Tertullus is trying to lay down, he's accusing Paul really of three things. Sedition, a political charge. Secondly, being a ringleader of a controversial group. Those Nazarenes. That's me and Jim. No, <laughs> In our day and age, it's like saying that Paul is the leader of a terrorist group 
or uh, at least a controversial group that's under surveillance. That's kind of the way Tortullus means it. This is both a political and a religious charge. And then the last is entirely a religious charge. He's, quote, profaned the temple. Which, I should add, Tortullus and the Jews are applying the consequence of that law quite wrongly if a Gentile, that's what they first accused Paul of bringing back into the temple, if the Gentile was supposed to be extracted and executed. Not Paul. So they're trying to apply that law wrongly. However, they never found the Gentile at the temple because he was never there. So so these are the charges. Seditious riot starter, ringleader of an extremist group, and a temple profaner. Misunderstanding the kingdom. But Paul's a good lawyer himself, and he's going to defend himself and do it brilliantly. So, just about every commentator agrees. You know, Christ had this way of getting to the substance of an issue that was both true, but also shrewd as it shifted the focus of things. This is kind of what Paul does. Let me give you an example of, of what Christ does. Take, for instance, Christ's trial with the Romans. Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? What does Jesus say? He doesn't say yes or no, but he does say, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? And in that answer, Jesus does a few things. He doesn't deny he is a king, but he redirects the focus of the conversation and he makes it personal for Pilate. So it's no longer Pilate stating what the stakes are. If you claim to be king, I can have you be convicted. If you deny this claim, you can be cleared. Rather now, the conversation is about what does Pilate think about Jesus? You see that? This becomes more evident in verse 37 of the same chapter. It says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. (laughs) Paul is about to redirect the focus of the charges. He'll still answer them. But then by the end of the story, he's going to make it personal for Felix. We, We pick it up in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And that's the end of Paul's opening words. (laughs) He's not going to lie and flatter the governor. He just says, you've been ruling for quite a while. Anyways, moving to the point of our discussion, it it could be that Paul is is hinting at an inferred compliment, as in, you're smart enough to deal with this. You've been ruling for quite a while. You know about Jews and Christians. So I can assume you'll judge rightly here. But then in verses 11 through 13, Paul will answer the charge to sedition. He says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone, stirring up a crowd in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. 12 days. He got to Jerusalem less than two weeks prior. So here's what this means. He didn't have time for army building and riot starting because Paul wasn't doing that. This also means for Felix, who was well informed of the Jews in his region, that probably like any Jew, Paul was showing up for Pentecost. (laughs) This also means that Paul could be saying, if I was there for bad purposes, where's the evidence my accusers need? You can go and find out for yourself. They're accusing me of things that supposedly happened within the last week and a half. 
This is Paul's defense as far as sedition is concerned. There's no evidence to prove it, and there's all the room to verify its inaccuracy. Next, Paul moves on to his second charge that he needs to defend himself from. He was accused of being a ringleader, as if he's the leader of some extremist terrorist group. Paul answers this in verse 14 through 16, verses 14 through 16. He says, but I, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, so there is the derogatory terms of Christians and Nazarenes, you know, followers of this hillbilly rabbi of Nazareth, it seems evident in Luke's writing that if this group had any name for themselves, it could have been the way. And then Paul says, which they, broader groups of Jews at large, call a sect. And here Paul begins to lay out what his extremist controversial sect believes, namely, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Sounds pretty radical and violent, right? So in answering this second charge leveled against him, namely that he was a religious fanatic or an extremist terrorist, Paul answers, I believe pretty much everything they do. (laughs) I worship Yahweh. I believe the Lord and prophets are inspired. I put my hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and unjust. Caveat here. Some of the men in the Sanhedrin accept that. It's what tore the Sanhedrin apart. Because the Pharisees accept a resurrection, but the Sadducees don't. The Sadducees aren't supernatural with their Jewish beliefs. And Paul seems to be banking on that again. That's what he did in the First time he was before them. And this is actually the thing. This is the redirection, the refocusing. Yes, Paul is brilliant in that he's changing the subject as he had changed the subject before. See, the riot started because of this. Supposedly, Paul brought an Ephesian into the temple. Never happened. The scriptures make that plain. But Paul, in both his trial before the Sanhedrin and this trial here, he says, They're upset because I hold, like some of them do, the Pharisees, the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The centrality of the resurrection. Here's what I've been thinking. First, like all the commentators tell me, and like I just stated, oh look, Paul hijacked the court and he got himself out of a bind by making it appear to those that he's being tried by, hey, this is an internal theological battle among the Jews which necessitates no Roman jurisdiction. Does that make sense? Just like Lysias said in his letter to Felix, that whenever he sent Paul, he said, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And the belief is, is that Paul shrewdly planned it that way. He exploited the disagreements in the Sanhedrin to show the courts this is just a Jewish matter. But yesterday, and why it was yesterday and not Tuesday, I don't know. But yesterday, I asked myself, what if it's more than that? What if Paul, who's said before the Sanhedrin and is saying it now, what if he's saying 
something. What if Paul's not throwing a diversionary grenade in the courts, but rather his concern has more weight and value than political maneuvering? In fact, let's hold on to verses 15 and 16 and come back to it. So the second charge, though, was just shot out of the water. How extreme is a Jew who believes pretty much everything Jews do except for finds hope that the Messiah has come? Especially if that Messiah has died and is only proclaimed resurrected but denounced by many. <laughs> Extremist or not, Paul's not out for any harm. He's not out. He's, he's only out to be the most sincere, genuine follower of Yahweh he believes is possible. This isn't a threat to Rome. Paul will now lastly move to handle the third charge, entirely religious as it is, that he came to profane the temple. He begins in verse 17. Now it says, he says, now after several years, so Paul was on his third missionary journey, and it had been several years since Paul had been to Jerusalem. This shows us a few things. That while he found value in coming to Jewish feasts and festivals, he no longer felt it necessary for salvation. He was able to skip out on a few of them while he was gone. Didn't care. But also that he hadn't been in Jerusalem again to start some underground riot. It had been a while, and when he did come, he says, I came to bring alms to my nation. That is, Jewish Christians. Paul wrote a few letters on his third missionary journey. We have a few of those in our Bible. And, for example, he wrote Romans. And in Romans it says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's the same trip he's talking about where this riot happened. And he says, I'm bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Paul also says to Felix that he came to present offerings. Uh, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Do you remember the plan that was sprung on Paul as he arrived in Jerusalem? In chapter 21, James and a few leaders of the church encouraged Paul to make a Jewish vow and uh, an offering for the sake of unity in the church. There were some Christians who, who were zealous for the law, as James says, and uh, Paul obliged to fulfill this for reasons of unity. So Paul is basically saying, so there I was in the temple doing a vow like any normal Jew would. And then he starts, but some Jews from Asia. Now that's when the riot started. And it's interesting, and it seems in the original Greek, so as it's shown here in English, that Paul was about to give the rest of that story. That some Jews from Asia, they were the ones who leveled the attack, not he. But perhaps he cuts himself off because he doesn't want to sound too resentful or contemptuous. So then Paul says about these Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men, likely referring to Ananias, Tortullus, the Sanhedrin and that party, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out, while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. There it is again, with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The centrality of the resurrection. Why is Paul making this the issue? Is it just because he wants to throw Rome onto that goose chase so as to present the reality that Felix has no jurisdiction of, over a Jewish 
theological debate, or is there more? I think there's more as we, we head into the last few verses. We begin to get further introduced to this judge here. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Here's the reality. He could convict Paul, but there simply wasn't enough evidence for it. He could release Paul, but that wouldn't stop the rabble-rousing, scheming Sanhedrin, which is a force to be reckoned with in keeping the peace. And actually, we'll find out that it is those types who actually eventually made Lysias step down as governor. So like a good politician, he finds a third option. I'll just prolong the decision. That never happens in our courts, I know. We're told he has, quote, a rather accurate knowledge of the way. We're not told how, why, or to what extent. Some think it's his influence from his Jewish wife we're about to be introduced to. The point is, is he likely knows more about Christianity than the Sanhedrin, or maybe even Paul thinks he knows. And it's that knowledge that influences his judgment. Paul's not a violent threat. And it could be that what he recognizes about the way and that Paul is a leader in that movement, we were told in Acts 21.10 that there had to have been thousands at that point who were Christians in Jerusalem. So executing a leader in that movement probably would have brought more Roman headaches. Verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. It shows you how much of a threat Felix believes Paul is. Then we read a little more about Felix. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, if you're looking for a new name, who was Jewish. Now, very quickly, as I discovered more about Drusilla and and Felix, this is like Herod and his wife who who were called out by John the Baptist type situation going on here. If you know your gospel accounts, you know that there, John the Baptist pulls no punches, but he calls out Herod, another ruler, because Herod had stolen, I believe, his brother's daughter, Herodias. There's a lot of incest going on. So there are three brothers. One brother has a daughter named Herodias. Herodias first marries her uncle Philip. Uh, Philip's other brother, one of the three brothers, is named Herod, and he steals Herodias from Philip. So she just married two of her uncles. And John the Baptist calls out Herod for all what's going on wrong with that situation, and John ends up beheaded. Well, what about Felix and Drusilla? What's going on with them? Drusilla was Jewish from the province that Felix ruled. Drusilla had likely married her first husband around age 14. But then she was lured away around age 16 to divorce that guy and enter into an unsanctioned marriage with Felix. For Felix, this is going to be his third wife. And furthermore, it was not okay to marry ladies within your own province. So I know it's not incestuous, but it's still affairs and divorces and enough drama and sin going on. What officials were also not supposed to do was use prisoners for their own private ends or entertainment. Yet here we are, and Felix sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So the Herod connection to John the Baptist continues. And Paul, like John the Baptist, isn't going to beat around the bush. He says, 
and he reasoned about righteousness, some translations even said morals, and self-control and the coming judgment. Not Paul's coming judgment concerning the court issue at hand, but rather the ultimate judgment that God had promised. These three things are appropriate for this ruler, Felix. Felix was a very unrighteous man. In verse 26, we're going to read that he, uh, uh, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. He's looking for bribes. He's greedy. He's corrupt. He's accepting bribes. He's unrighteous. And here he's meeting with Paul not to hear his case more and let the poor man go or make a ruling, just to hear him. Hey, tell me more about your religious stuff. To to clarify a few things so you'll make a ruling? No, I'm just curious. (laughs) Paul is no doubt saying things like, we need to be righteous people before God. And what Christ's death and resurrection means is that we can be righteous in His power. We can also have self-control. That's his second point. Do you know that a fruit of the Spirit is self-control? Do you know what that means? That when a sin tempts you, you have the power in God and the Holy Spirit to resist, to show self-control. Who threatened you, Felix, to force Drusilla to divorce her husband, which no doubt cost her everything within her Jewish culture, and marry yet again a third wife? Nobody forced him. He chose to do it. Just like you and I have those moments. If I do this, I'll feel guilty and I'll know I've done wrong. I can choose not to do this but I'll give in anyway. No, we can actually have self-control. And then lastly, Paul speaks on the coming judgment. Paul had said this in his trial, verses 15 and 16. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. There's a coming judgment. There will be a day when you and I have to give an account for all we do, who we are, what we've said or done in public or in private, everything. We can't hide anything from God. And Paul, in chains, brought to trial, is now revealing who the judge's judge is. No wonder we then hear, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And then what we read already, verse 26, at the beginning of it, we read, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, so Paul's taken a vacation, a forced vacation here. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Again, historically, we're told that it was the Jews who basically made sure Felix was leaving. He had mismanaged some conflicts between Jews and Syrians, kind of like what's happening a little bit here. So to do the Jews a favor is no doubt a favor of hush money. I'll keep your enemy in jail if you just finally shut up about what you're saying about me and make it more bearable for me in my career. The name of this message was chosen for many reasons when Paul turned the tables at the temple. First, it's a connection to Christ and what he did at the temple. Christ turned over the tables and he upset the religious order. He did that the day after Palm Sunday, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Paul symbolically is doing the same thing. Paul's in prison for what happened at the temple. However, in his court battles, he's managed to turn the tables. 
He's turned the tables on the Sanhedrin because he exploited their animosity towards him and each other concerning the resurrection. He turned the tables on Felix because he's given him true implications to dread concerning the resurrection of the just, or in Felix's case, the unjust. And so this Palm Sunday, as Christ came amid misunderstandings about the kingdom, he wasn't coming to save Israel from the Romans. He wasn't coming to establish a physical kingdom. His coming had everything to do with the resurrection. Christ would come, and as you know, the cries of save now and Hosanna would become cries of crucify him. And he would die, but it would be for our sins. Paul had just written in his third missionary journey to Rome, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, what Christ does on the cross by His blood to be received by faith. The resurrection is life to those who believe, but dread to those who don't receive. Dread to the likes of Felix who is alarmed, but never repents. It is through faith in Christ's blood that our resurrection need not be one of the unjust to everlasting contempt and shame, but one of the just to salvation in Christ. That is the kingdom Christ was bringing when He was welcomed as King on that triumphal Sunday long ago. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, many people perhaps would be, I don't know, trying to get out of prison as soon as possible. Maybe some would even have the audacity to try to find a bribe because this governor is willing to let me go. But as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he is fine and content to be imprisoned. Perhaps other brothers and sisters in Christ would be saying, what are you doing? You can be out on a fourth, fifth, sixth missionary journey. But Paul felt like you called him to even have the audacity to try to convert Felix. At least show him his sin. Show him that he needs saving. And even though Felix never received it, Paul was faithful. And at the end of Felix's life, he cannot say, I never knew. I never heard. Father, wherever we are at with our suffering and our chains, with our problems, what is it that you're calling us to do? Who is it you're calling us to minister to, witness to? Or are you even calling us to minister by our own activity, our own demeanor and how we handle the suffering we're under? Father, whatever the situation is, we just thank you for the example of Paul. We ask that we too would be able to minister as he ministers. And Father, help us to continue day in and day out to receive your gospel, that you did die for our sins, that your resurrection means that we too can die to our sins and we can be part of the resurrection of the just at the end of history. Thank you for this truth. I pray that as we go about our week, that this truth and reality would be lived out in our lives. We love you, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.